2: That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we discover the world of actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo. We discuss his first role in Runaway Train and how he kept his sanity in solitary confinement.
3: When, uh, when I was in Folsom, what I did was I used to act out two movies. I acted out The Wizard of Oz. Give me those shoes, Dorothy! Every time the guard would walk by, did you kill my sister? I did that one, and then I did the hunchback of Notre Dame, but the hunchback with Charles Lawton, not the new ones. She gave me water. That was, God, he was unbelievable.
2: <laughs> also coming up, we make sheep pan chicken, a recipe inspired by Nigella Lawson. And Alex iNews digs into famous meatballs around the world. But first, it's my interview with Gina Renault. She's the founder of Yume Confections, which specializes in wagashi, intricately designed Japanese tea cakes. Gina, welcome to Moat Street.
1: Thank you, Christopher. So nice to be here.
2: You have an interesting backstory. You were born in Korea, adopted uh, by your Japanese mother. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and then you moved to Japan when you were eight for four years. Um, You had three totally different cultures in the first 10 years of life. Was that a tough balancing act?
1: Well, you know, it was different worlds. um, Because when I was adopted in Korea, I was four. So I was kind of conscious enough to know about my surroundings and to realize that, you know, all of a sudden I landed in this whole new country and it was an unusual situation in that I was actually living with my birth mother. I wasn't in an orphanage. And at the time, it was considered an open adoption.
2: Did you ever see your birth mother again?
1: I actually did. I ended up in college going back and revisiting my stepfather who adopted me. And he gave me this little piece of paper that had an address, which was the last address that we had lived in. And at that time, I was working for a newsweekly paper. And uh, my friend, the art director, one of his best friends he introduced me to was Korean. And they were actually going back to visit Korea for the 1988 Olympics. And so I gave him the little piece of paper, and he looked at it and said, Oh, I have an aunt that lives very close by. And to my surprise, when they returned, they had uh, made this whole videotape of them going to the police station and giving them the address and the policeman taking them down the neighborhood street. And when they knocked on the door... And asked if uh, anybody there knew who Gina was. The woman said, "Oh, yes, we do. She's, <laughs> she's our, you know, long-lost stepsister." Um, and so it was quite amazing to me that after all these years, when my friends knocked on the door, that there was somebody there, and um, and that was how I found my mother. It's
2: an amazing story. I mean, and it has a happy ending too. So
1: yes, it did. And and then subsequently. Her youngest daughter, Sungi, turned out to come and live in uh, New Jersey. And so I had an opportunity to have a big reunion where my mother came. Yeah, that was amazing. And then I rushed back to Olympia, put a down payment on a house, (laughs) and invited my mother to come and spend the last couple weeks in America uh, with me here.
2: So let's talk about Wagashi, which... To the un, you know, initiated, we call them tea cakes. Obviously, they're a lot more than that. Yes. So at the highest level, what is wagashi?
1: So wagashi are basically traditional tea sweets um, that were really designed to be part of the tea ceremony. And um, the traditional ingredients would be native to Japan. So rice flour, beans, roots, flowers, leaves... And the ones that would be sculpted into, you know, exquisite little shapes would be called kiri. And netiquiri is made by taking the bean paste and adding a bit of mochi to it. And it becomes very similar to um, marzipan.
2: So I did watch Andrew Zimmern's episode of Bizarre Foods when he visited you. He, He did show the koi pond which was this long tablescape. Could you describe what's in it, what it looks like, and what it represents?
1: Yes, so the koi pond was designed for the Portland Japanese Garden. They were having a koi release party, and so what I decided to do would be to create a whole section of a stream. It was all agar-agar water, and what you're doing is you're looking through the slice of these different koi fish, floating through the water and um, the pebbles on the ground are actually candied beans so yeah it was a wonderful way to take wagashi and um, develop it into a larger piece.
2: Did anyone ever get to eat it <laughs> or was it just?
1: Yes we did <laughs> okay. and you know what was really fun about that was the koi farmer who had actually brought in all the koi to release at this event came up and and had some of it and we were talking about the fish and he was actually pointing out the different patterns that I had created on some of the koi and was telling me what kind of koi they were. (laughs) So he was actually recognizing the spots on them.
2: (laughs) So you didn't grow up in Japan you spent four years there at age eight, but now later in life you've totally devoted yourself to the art of wagashi, these tea cakes. Um, Is that difficult to come in and try to master this later on?
1: You know, I think I was very intimidated by it at the very first because, for me, it was after working at Nike for many years, after working with Adidas, I just decided I really wanted for the last part of my life to find something to do on my own. i had always told myself, you know, I was a visual artist. One day I was going to grow up and make art. But I really felt like I didn't have... I, I don't know about time left, but I certainly felt like I wanted to try something um, that I dreamed about. And one day I was shopping at uh, my favorite local Japanese store, Anzen, and in this little basket sitting in it was this little wooden mold. And I thought, what is that? And I researched it and realized, oh, this is for making little Japanese kashigata. Um, So then I started finding Japanese cookbooks and... So I took those to my adoptive mother, and she was able to translate some of the first recipes. So I thought, you know, this is a good thing. All of these years I've been doing European, you know, breads and cakes and and pies. But, you know, this is an opportunity to make something that, you know, she really loves too.
2: What is it at the core of these confections that is so appealing to you philosophically?
1: Well, what I love about it is that it really focuses on the present, you know, the present season and nature, and, um, you know, it's setting aside everything to take a moment to appreciate and contemplate the beauty of the cherry blossoms when they're blooming, you know, how they open, the light, the frost, you know, after the rain, and, um, you know, and it does this for all of the seasons. Um, I love the fact that it uses really simple ingredients, you know, many of which are vegan and, you know, uses flowers. And, you know, the cakes are steamed using um, oak leaves, so it imparts that flavor. Um, I just find the materials and, and the focus on, on the changing seasons to be, you know, really rewarding.
2: Gene, it's been just a real pleasure uh, having you on Milk Street. Thanks.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Christopher.
2: That was Gina Renault, founder of You Make Confections. Right now, my co host, Sarah Malt, and I will be taking your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. Let's open up the phone lines.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Melissa Cohen. Hi, Melissa. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Rhinebeck, New York. Oh, so beautiful up there, the Hudson. any rate, how can we help you today?
5: I've been trying to make uh, seed crackers gluten-free. I've been playing around with alternative flours like amaranth, almond flour, things like that. And I've found that the amaranth, which gives it a really nice texture and flavor, but also makes it kind of bitter. Hmm. I wanted to know if you guys had any suggestions of other flours to try. And is there a reason why you're
4: not just using one of the standard gluten-free flours that is a mix of several different
5: kinds of flours? No, not necessarily. I think I was approaching it more from thinking about substituting different flours as opposed to thinking of it specifically um, like as a gluten-free combo. I didn't think of that. You know,
4: there's some good ones out there. King Arthur makes one. There's one uh, called Cup for Cup Gluten-Free Flour that's very good. You might want to just start with that as your base. There's a reason why there's different ingredients in there because all together they do the job that you need them to do to sort of hold the item together and, you know, provide the sort of basic taste you're looking for. But I don't know. Let's see what Chris has to say.
2: Did you say you used a combination of amaranth and other flowers, or just amaranth flour when you were making these crackers?
5: I tried amaranth and almond flour. That's what I had available in my cupboard.
2: Was the texture crisp when you made the crackers using almond flour?
4: The texture was great. You said you got it out of your cupboard. Almond flour shouldn't be in the cupboard. It should be in the refrigerator.
2: It goes bad fast because it's got so much oil in it, so much fat in it.
4: So it might have been the almond flour that was the culprit, not the amaranth.
2: After just a few months sitting in a room temperature, it'll go bad.
5: The amaranth is not normally bitter.
2: Almond flour is not bitter, but I think amaranth is more bitter. I would just stay away from that.
5: It's not just the cracker. I make like seeded crackers. So I'm putting flax, chia and um, sesame seeds pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds
4: every last thing you just mentioned also is not going to last for a long time unless it's refrigerated nuts and seeds go rancid very quickly
2: my suggestion would be rice flour is sort of the basic flour you want to play with especially when it comes to crackers it's a pretty lean flour i would use those as your basic flour And if you want to experiment, that's fine. But I think white and brown rice flours is sort of the key to most gluten-free flour recipes.
4: I was just going to say, if you're going to add any nuts or seeds, make sure they're really fresh. Because those can go rancid easily, too. And that includes sesame seeds.
5: Oh, okay. That's great to know.
2: Or freeze them. They'll keep in the freezer a long time.
5: Great. Well, I'll try that. Okay, thanks.
2: Thanks for calling.
6: Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Anita calling from Diamond Bar, California.
2: How can we help you?
6: I have a question actually about how you both maintain your pans at home. My question came up because one morning I went to fry up some paneer in my all-clad pan. And it was amazing. It didn't stick at all. And then later that same day, in the same pan, I had so many sticking problems, and it just was a mess. And what I realized was that the first time I had used my aluminum pan, it had been what I considered to be dirty. It was like somebody hadn't really scrubbed the interior. And then after I had done a really good job scouring the inside of my pan, then all of a sudden the paneer was sticking like crazy, And it made me wonder, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should leave my pans a little bit, you know, more greasy. So then I wondered what you and Sarah do.
2: Well, it depends on the pan. I mean, you're talking not about aluminum. You're talking about, I think, if it's all clad, a stainless steel exterior with an aluminum core. So you're actually cooking, I think, on stainless steel, right? Not on aluminum directly. You know, in a cast iron pan or a uh, carbon steel pan, both of which I use... You can season those pans, you heat them up with a little bit of oil, you rub the oil into the pan as it heats up and as it cools, repeat that process a few times, and you build up a layer, essentially, of fat, of oil, between the food and the metal. So you probably had some fat that was cooked onto the bottom of the pan, and that fat made it less stick. The problem is, I don't think on stainless steel, you can build up a really thick layer, Cast iron is fairly porous, as is carbon steel. I think it's easier to build up a nonstick layer. So the concept should work on stainless steel, but my guess is it's not going to be as effective. The other thing is once you get bits and pieces of food, you know, sort of burnt onto a pan and you get a rough surface, that's going to make it very hard to be nonstick. So the the short answer is, yeah, you can do it a little bit, but cast iron and carbon steel, it's going to work better. Sarah?
4: I agree with that. Uh, One thing I'd say about stainless steel, though, is is it's important to heat it up before you ever add the oil. That really helps. And to use a fair amount of oil. But I think Chris is right. You're never going to get the same consistent performance from a stainless steel pan as you would from cast iron or carbon. So we actually agree. Wow.
2: (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I don't know what to do. I'm just completely uh, flabbergasted, you know. Uh, I know, really. I knew it was about to happen eventually, right?
4: Yeah, right.
2: There's one last thing. Paneer, cheese, is the worst possible thing to try to cook and make it nonstick. Because cheese will bond to cast iron or carbon steel like glue. So as Sarah just said, the trick is use a lot of oil because that'll smooth out the pores and give you a fairly nonstick surface, that'll help a lot.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the thing about paneer is perhaps if you dusted it in some flour or cornstarch or breadcrumbs before you sauteed it, that might help too. Oh, that's an idea. Add a nice crunch, why not?
2: Sarah, you're on today. (laughs) Anyway, uh, give that a try. And we get a big carbon steel pan, like a 12-inch skillet. They're 40 bucks and you can actually season them. It would be a good investment, so.
4: Yes, yes, I agree. Okay, Anita. Anita, thanks for calling. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye
2: bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime at 855 426 9843. 855 426 9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: This is Alice Wooten of uh, Paoli, Indiana. How are you? I'm great. I'm very happy to get some help from you guys
2: well we'll try anyway (laughs) so what's your question
7: well like you i don't like cooking with cake mixes i have a couple of recipes that call for cake mixes with pudding in the mix and i'd like to be able to make those from
2: scratch how do you do that (laughs)
4: <laughs> wow, that is such a
7: large question.
2: Give me an example of the recipe you're talking about. Let's talk. Okay,
7: about it. the one I really want is called Delicate Pear Cake mm-hmm. with Caramel Sauce, and it requires a white cake mix with pudding in the mix. You mix it with a can of pears and light syrup. You have to puree the pears, and then you add oil and egg whites and some of the pear liquid from the can. And then you bake it in a tube pan. And then, of course, it's iced with uh, sweetened whipped cream. And then there's a caramel sauce. It's just really delicious. And I don't want to use a mix that has all these chemicals in it.
2: One thing I do know about cake mixes, they do an excellent job of texture. And my guess is in this case, it's very helpful because you're dealing with something that's fairly heavy, the pears and the liquid. So if you're not going to use a cake mix, you're going to have to come up with a homemade cake mix that's going to be equally good at that. Let's go to the pears again.
7: It's just a a 15-ounce can of pear halves and light syrup. Drain the pears first, and you reserve a third a cup of the liquid, and then you puree the pears, and then you add that puree along with that reserved light syrup to the cake mix, and then you add oil and egg white. You could poach your
4: own pears, so you could do that part of it homemade. And then you've got at least that part, you've controlled the ingredients. Uh, I I have a question, though. When you say there's a pudding added, what do you mean exactly?
7: Well, most of it's just chemicals. I mean, words I can't even pronounce. Well, what it is is a riff
2: on a pudding cake. It's just marketing. I would go to Rose Berenbaum's Cake Bible. I agree. And she has a recipe which she does reverse creaming. That is, she... Beats the softened butter in with the flour as the first step, which gives mm-hmm. you really great texture. And I would use her recipe as the base. That's what I would do.
4: I think okay. that's an excellent idea. Yeah. Use her recipe. The pureed pears will make it wonderfully moist, also.
2: I think the pear liquid's a little dicey. That's the one part I would worry about. I would just add the pears, leave it at that. What's the book? The Cake Bible. Look in her book and see if she has a recipe for something like this already. Yeah, that's the other thing I would do.
4: Yeah, she might. She
2: might have something similar, and then you could just use her recipe, which is probably a better idea. Yeah, give that a shot.
7: Well, thank you, thank you so much. Okay, Okay.
2: thanks, Alice. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo. That and more in just a moment.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allegash for sharing. You can try Allegash White at home too. Head to Allegash.com/locator to find Allegash White near you.
6: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allegash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Most J Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with actor Danny Trejo. He's appeared in over 300 films and TV shows, including Breaking Bad. Desperado, Sons of Anarchy, Spy Kids, and Machete. In 2016, he opened his first restaurant in Los Angeles, Trejo's Tacos, and he recently released a cookbook, Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Danny, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. An honor.
2: Yeah, it's an honor for me, too. Uh, I love your work uh, and your food. Uh, You know, I was listening to an interview you did a while back, and you were talking about some time you spent in prison. And you said, one day you said, please, God, let me die with dignity. Yeah. And that's really stuck with me. Could you just talk about that?
3: Well, it was uh, it was alleged that me, Ray Pacheco, and Henry Quijada, it was alleged we started a riot on Cinco de Mayo. And uh, so uh, we ended up going to the hole. There were some real serious charges. And I remember seeing a movie God in the early fifties, I think it was called the East Side Kids. Oh
2: yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
3: And uh, the bad guy in the neighborhood, the real guy they all looked up to, he was going to up the river to the chair, and uh, and 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 mugs and the gang. They were saying, yeah, well he'll spit in their eye. Yeah, you know he'll come come and get me coppers, and they'll have to fight him all the way. And uh, Pat O'Brien had to come and tell him, no. Nah, he cried like a baby, you know. So I remember that, and and I, I had a little reputation. I was lightweight and welterweight champion in the penitentiary, and I, I said, God, let me die with dignity. Don't let me, don't let me uh, go out crying. And I'll say your name every day, and I'll do whatever I can for my fellow man. Hmm. Well, I thought I was just going to have like a couple of years, then they were going to kill me. But God fooled me, and he, and he gave me the rest of my life. And uh, I'm 75. I got out of the pen when I was 26. I've said his name every day, and I've done everything I could for my fellow man every day that I've been out. You uh, you,
2: you made good on your promise. Yeah,
3: he made good on his, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he
2: did. That's true. Um, back in the 50s, you and I grew up in the 50s, uh, you said that... Like a lot of people, when the paychecks ran out towards the yeah. end of month, the month, the 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 dinner table changed a lot.
3: Oh, absolutely, you know what? It's like anybody that's working for a check. The first of the of the month, you have great dinners. You have meals, but then come close to the end of the month, my mom was like a magician. She would make stuff, and you know, Mom, what's this? Uh, it's called out of the cupboard. It's real good. Eat it. She would just get all the leftovers and put them together, and they were great. Mom, what's this? Shut up and eat it. That's shut up and eat it. And <laughs> Shut up know, eating casserole. <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know, and it was, uh, it, it, was, you know, it was delicious. The only problem, I took my mom's dishes and collaborated with a lot of the chefs and kind of got the taste. But, you know, in the 50s, I, I, I don't know how other people did it, but our favorite ingredient was lard.
2: Yeah. Well, you know what? I still like lard. In Mexican cooking, you start with lard, right? It's it's got yeah, a whole
3: A whole spoonful. So what we try to do is yeah. we try to take that out and but still get the taste. And we've done we've done really, really well with, with uh
2: I've been trying to for the last ten years I've been trying to get the lard back. <laughs> I don't know. So I love carnitas. Uh Ah God. But you, you, you say you have the world's best carnitas taco,
3: right? Let me tell you, let me tell you, my breakfast is carnitas, nachos. I get nachos, plenty of cheese, and uh, carnitas, and two eggs over easy on top. Mm. And it's delicious. That's breakfast. And then that way, if I don't have time for lunch, I've already eaten
2: it. That's <laughs> a twofer. <laughs> that sounds pretty good, though, man. <laughs> it's the two eggs on top that did it for me. Um You said L.A. is a massive, sprawling puzzle with little pieces
3: of this and that. Oh, yeah.
2: And don't ever think about completing the puzzle. I think that's the best description of L.A. I've ever heard. Do you want to talk about that?
3: You know what? It's so funny. People come here and they think they're going to take this place by storm, especially celebrities. Celebrities come here, they open a restaurant, and because their name is, you know, this, this, and this, they think, my name will carry it. People will come to your restaurant one time for... An autograph, maybe a picture. You, know, you kiss their baby. <laughs> if the food's not good, they're not coming back. <laughs> um, so,
2: how did you get into acting again? I mean, that that seems. I know you've been in like three hundred movies or something <laughs> insane.
3: Yeah, I uh, I was trying to do this extra thing, but I had no ambition to be like an actor. I just they was giving us everybody fifty bucks cash. And I ran into a friend of mine, a guy named Eddie Bunker. And Eddie says, "Hey, Danny, w- w- what are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be an extra. They're gonna give me fifty bucks for acting like a convict." And uh, we laughed because we'd both been doing that for years, for free. And uh, and uh, <laughs> and so he said, "Hey, are you still boxing?" I go, "No, I'm 40 years old, man. I, I don't get hit in the face no more." And he said, uh, we need somebody to train one of the actors how to box. And I said, what's it pay? And he said, uh, $320 a, a day. And I said, how bad you want this guy beat up? I thought he wanted me to beat somebody up, you know? <laughs> no, I am <mean, laughs> come on. This is 1985. I wasn't making 320 a week. And, uh, I said, "Really? I couldn't believe it." He said, "Yeah, you got to be real careful. This actor's real high strung. He might sock you." I said, "Eddie, for three hundred and twenty bucks, give him a stick." Are you crazy? I've been beat up for free, hoes. <laughs> and and uh, I started training an actor named Eric Roberts how to box. And so I, I, that was my first movie, a movie called Runaway Train with John Voight and Eric Roberts. Oh
2: yeah, I know that movie. Yeah.
3: And uh, my my career, I just. For the first five years of my career, I played inmate number one. In fact, my book that's coming out is called Inmate Number One.
2: You, you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of people on this show. You seem to have a unique energy and enjoyment for life.
3: What do you figured out here? You figured something out. Well, you know, I kind of figured out that it's like, I don't know if that famous Kwai Chang Kang said it or God, but... He said, you will be yourself because everybody else is taken. And so, you know, I just got to be myself. I don't want to be anybody. I don't want to resent. Resentments are our number one killers.
2: Was there a point in your life when you did resent other people and you stopped? Oh, yeah. In
3: 1968, in the hole in Soledad, I was through. I remember every teacher I ever had said enormous potential, a lot of potential. I remember parole officers telling me this inmate has enormous potential, refuses to use it. And I remember when I was standing in the hole thinking about the gas chamber, I remember asking myself, where's all that potential? (laughs) What happened to all that potential? You know, because I'm 24 years old, and they're going to top me. And and I remember saying, God, if you're there, me, Ray, and Henry are going to be okay. If you're not, we're screwed. So I, I, yeah, I came out of the hole, and I'll never get. I, I got sober August twenty third, nineteen sixty eight. I came out of the hole August twenty sixth, three days later. And the reason I know is because we were all sitting in the hole, and a song by the Beatles came on the radio, and the hole is always noisy. I mean, people screaming, yelling, you know, having nightmares, and, and uh, they started singing that song, "Say Jude." don't be afraid and and the whole got quiet and so the the guard turned it up a little bit and we could hear it and so it was quiet quiet and I when it gets like that worry because the minute the minute he started saying choo Juddydy wow toilets were broken <laughs> it was flooded <laughs> fires were started it went <laughs> I will never forget that because that's what you do. Do you understand? You can talk about that for two weeks. So you're not thinking about, oh, I'm in prison. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> how how do you keep your sanities essentially in the dark for all that
3: time? You, you know what? It's like you, you, uh, when, when I was in Folsom, what I did was I used to act out two movies. I acted out the wizard of Oz. <laughs> Give me those shoes, Dorothy. And, uh, <laughs> Every time the guard would walk by, <laughs> did you kill my sister? I did that one, and then I did the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but the Hunchback with Charles Lawton, not the new ones. She gave me, she gave me water. That was God. He was unbelievable.
2: I, I I like the way you pick two movies where one, you're the Wicked Witch, and the other one, you're the
3: Hunchback.
2: It's a good... It tells on, you something,
3: doesn't it, man? I couldn't be Dorothy. No, you
2: could, well, you
3: could be Glinda, the Witch of the East. You know, there you go. I mean. Yeah, but she was the Good Witch. And playing Dorothy might be a little crazy. You know? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Toto, this sure don't look like Kansas. And so, and so you know, uh, you kind of go crazy... Yourself right. to keep them from making you crazy, because they don't make you crazy.
2: So, wh- so when you got out, what did you do? As soon as you got out,
3: well, when I got out, the first thing I did was uh, I called a guy named Frank Russo, Frank Russo, Frank Russo, and I say that because he told me never to mention his name. But uh, he had a he he was working at a, a wrecking yard, and so I got a job there when I first got out. And that's what you got to do to please your parole officer to get them off your back right away. And then I got another job from there selling tools, but the only problem is they were legal. And so I, I showed up in a suit to these places and they would immediately say, no, 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 we don't want to, we don't want So I, this is not working. So what I did was I got a pair of press Levi's starched and put those on. I put on a black leather, long leather coat, top coat. And I'd, uh, I'd go to the back of the body shop. I'd go, I'd go hey, and they'd come out right away. And uh, they said, what do you got? I said, you know what? I got some tools. Because they thought they were buying something hot. And they were all, <laughs> they were all like legal. And <laughs> then when I got back to the office, I handed him like 800 bucks. And he says, got any receipt? No, I didn't get no receipts. What do you mean you didn't get no rece-? I said, Sam, they won't buy them. From me, they'll buy them if they think they're stolen. And so, so we, me and him, made all the receipts out. <laughs> I don't know if that was, if the IRS is listening, it's a lie. <laughs> so, but what, what,
2: what are we going to make the movie of your life?
3: Ah, oh, God,
2: on, I just wrote a book. I know, I but just, that's got to be I, a movie. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> Danny. It's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks for being on Milk Street.
3: Thank you so much. God bless you, man. Thank you so much for this interview, and it's such an honor to talk to you. Thanks, Danny.
2: That was Danny Trejo. His new cookbook is called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. You know, I love Danny Trejo. Ask me why, and I'll say because he made a promise, and then he kept it. He promised he would go straight after prison, and indeed, he did. I also love Danny Trejo because he is grateful for his life, prison and all. You know, we don't get to choose our cars, but the best among us choose to be grateful for whatever hand we are dealt. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, roast chicken. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I interviewed Nigella Lawson recently on the show, and she mentioned a term in her new book called bakes, which obviously is an English term. And I asked her what it was, and it was chicken or chicken parts and you bake other stuff with it on a sheet pan so it's all it happens at once so I like the name and I like the idea we brought it back to the kitchen but we thought we'd take that concept and adapt it to something else so we have chicken we have a tray now what are we going to do
0: so we have bone-in skin on chicken parts here you can mix that up you can use breasts thighs drumsticks whatever combination you want here they got on a sheet tray with a spice rub, and this particular one has coriander, ginger, salt, and pepper, and sugar. It's baked in the oven for about 40 minutes at 450, and that allowed us to get the crispy skin we wanted. It also created a um, fond on our pan, which was another opportunity to make some flavor and add something different to this very simple baked chicken recipe.
2: Lynn, are you just teasing me? So so what's the special thing we're going to (laughs) do?
0: So we're going to make the sauce right on the sheet tray. Initially, we just deglaze the pan and use that fond to kind of make a quick sauce with lemon juice and zest. But what we found was we could add something else onto the tray. And so we added 10 garlic cloves actually onto the tray. It goes in the oven with the chicken. So that roasts in the oven gets really nice and sweet and caramelized and soft. You just smash the garlic right on the tray and then whisk in the water and the lemon juice and the herbs. And it creates a really nice pan sauce on your sheet tray, which is a pan, but typically we think of doing that on the stove top. It's all done right on that hot sheet tray.
2: So you bake the chicken parts and roast the sauce ingredients on the same thing, and then you actually make the sauce on the hot sheet pan. We do. I like that. Very easy. It sounds a little joy of cooking, but actually, what old is new? Lynn, thank you so much.
0: You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for roast chicken at 177milkstreet.com.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News searches for the world's most perfect meatballs. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. That's moe, M O W I, salmon.us to learn more.
9: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?
2: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome
4: to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: This is Tom. How are you? Good. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Naples, Florida.
4: Okay. How can we help (laughs) you today?
7: Well, I was uh, standing over a pot uh, making some uh, stock following what I had been taught, and that is to slowly scoop out all the scum that comes up as it begins to boil, you know, that takes quite a while. And I began wondering, what is that scum, and does it really need to be removed? And if I don't remove it, what's going to happen? Well,
4: I know that Chris and I thoroughly, Food fight. Food fight. Th- thoroughly disagree about this, but I'm okay. French trained, so I'm going to tell you one thing, and then Chris is going to tell you another, and then you're going to do okay. what you want to do, and my guess is you're going to do what Chris <laughs> says, which is fine. Right. I'm just glad you're making homemade stock. But that scum is protein solids that come from the bones. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. And, you know, my feeling, my experience is that it only takes 15, it only gives off that scum for about 15 to 20 minutes. And then you're home free. So the reason to do it, and it's very French because the French are all about appearances, is so that your stock is crystal clear when you're done. Ah. If you let it simmer vigorously or boil, those protein solids will go back into the liquid and become emulsified, and you will have a quote-unquote cloudy stock. Now, that is a no-no in French cooking. Now, because I'm French trained, I would say skim the scum. It's only 15 to 20 minutes. I wander away. I come back. I skim it again. I wander away. I come back. I do other things. But it's not necessary. It will not affect the flavor. And now I'm going to hear from Chris.
2: Yeah, here's my theory. I'm perfectly happy following the Sarah Moulton French method, which means I can't be bothered for 15 minutes. So if you want some downtime, some free personal time, it's a great thing. You know, I agree with Sarah. It's only 15 minutes. The skimming is kind of fun, actually. It's one of the few things I really kind of enjoy, mindless things. I don't think it's a problem. If you don't do it, it's fine. Okay. But I don't know. I kind of enjoy skimming scum.
4: you surprised me I know,
2: I know. It's a poetic... Yeah, I don't know.
4: Really? I'm sort of shocked.
2: And I can just say, I'm sorry I'm busy skimming scum.
7: Well,
4: Tom, yeah. there you go. You can so, do, you do it or not do it. Yeah. It
7: seems it would matter of how I'm going to use the stock. If I'm just using it for, you know, a, a thick split pea soup like or a bean something soup. like that, yeah. that's one thing. Right. Yeah.
2: A consomme? No.
7: Right. Well, this was very helpful. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you, Tom. Take care. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. All
2: right. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Uh, Natalie.
2: Natalie, where are you calling from?
5: Seattle. How can we help you? Well, about a month or so ago, I had called with a problem to figure out what to do with some... uh, cheese rinds left over from making soup. And Sarah had recommended frying them, and I I liked that idea a lot. (laughs) So, that's what I did with them after I made the soup. And? Well, let's see, I ended up just putting them on, um, like, bruschetta, you know, kind of like melty cheese. The soup was okay. I might need more practice with that. (laughs) It was a little dull.
2: What was in the soup?
5: Mushrooms and It had some uh, dried porcini as the base, and the cheese was kind of thick with the soup. But I liked frying the cheese rinds.
2: You know, frying, you can't go wrong. I mean, Sarah often suggests frying. Is that a very French solution to problems? I don't know, but it seems to work for me.
4: Well, I wouldn't say it's French, but hey, frying, as we know, imparts wonderful flavor and texture, so there you go. Did you deep fry them, or did you saute them?
5: I sauteed them. Yeah, I just fried them in uh, a little bit of olive oil. Made a mess out of the (laughs) pan.
2: You could have egg-washed them and breaded them first, right? That would have added a little bit to it.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't have breading and things like that much lately. The covers are a bit bare. Yes, understandably.
2: Yes, they are. It's interesting that the old cookbooks, you know, they had sour milk recipes, you know, what to do with it. They had, you know, stale bread recipes, breadcrumbs. So they were experts at reusing every little bit they never threw anything out maybe we'll all go back to that so a stale loaf of bread turns into breadcrumbs or croutons or anyway it sounds like it worked out and sarah had a good idea well thank you yeah thanks for calling great. take care thank
4: you take care bye-bye
2: now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners
1: Hi, my name is Jonathan Isbil and I am a registered dietitian in the state of Indiana. I just wanted to share a quick tip on how I like to use the waffle maker to bake and dehydrate foods in the kitchen whenever I don't want to heat up the whole oven. So if I place thin slices of potatoes, for instance, on the waffle maker and let the waffle maker do its job by pressing the potatoes in between each cooking iron, then it will actually bake a crispy, crunchy potato chip. Healthier than anything that you could buy at the grocery store, for instance. And it can be done in less time than you can have in the oven. That's my tip.
2: If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please visit 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex i Alex, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm working on meatball these days. Oh boy. <laughs> and you've made, you've
9: made 2,000 meatballs in the last month, probably. Uh, I'm getting close to 2,000, probably. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting close to understanding more what really matters about meatballs. You see, my initial quest was this. I thought meatballs are underrated. I thought meatballs do not get the
2: attention they deserve. They are taken for granted. I, I don't know, what, you, what, what what's your call on this? Oh, I, I totally agree. I You know, I've, I was in Mexico recently, made Mexican meatballs. Uh, we were in Naples, made Neapolitan meatballs, the little polpette, you know, the small Italian ones uh, yes. ser- served in I, gravy, I which I, I love. I, I think the problem is in America, meatballs became huge and sort of tasteless. Uh, but if you go to the country of origin, Meatballs, mm. almost, you know, little pork meatballs in Vietnam served in a soup. Uh, I'm with you. I love them. I, I, I love everything you mentioned. All the examples you mentioned, the bun cha in Vietnam,
9: the albondigas right. in, in Mexico right. or, or in Spain, and, and the polpette. And, and I think that's very interesting that you mentioned polpette in Italy because doing my research, I thought, let's see what the, the three most popular meatballs are. The very first one. It's not the Italian meatball per se, it's the Italian-American meatball. It's the Americanized version of the polpette, so it's a bigger, maybe a softer uh, version of the Italian beef meatballs. So that would be the first one. The second one is the Swedish meatballs, the one I had, and I'm sorry to, to confess this, at IKEA like like as a as a kid i wouldn't go to ikea unless i can get meatballs that was the deal with my parents uh, and then the third type the third most uh, world most famous type is the turkish meatball köfte the more köfte. spicy yeah. uh, exactly right. more 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 spicy with with more edge to them the way i conducted my research is very simple i went to each birthplace of the meatball, and I tasted them, and I tried to understand what I could take from it. So I went to New York in the US, and I went to several restaurants where they served what is seen to be the best Italian-American meatballs in the country. And I found that they are pretty big, yes. Uh, They're not super strong in terms of flavor. They are always dredged in that red sauce. Then, second step in my journey, I went to Stockholm in Sweden and I cooked with the chef there. And he taught me how to make Swedish meatballs. So, Chötbüller, as they call them. Maybe a bit less juicy, uh, but always dredged in that creamy gravy and served with a few sides that do have very
2: much of an importance. Can I ask you a question? Did you just dream all this? Or did you actually go to Stockholm and then have a lesson in making Swedish meatballs? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I I,
9: I went to each and every of these places and I've been cooking with these chefs and I've been enjoying every second of it. The last place I I went to was Istanbul in Turkey and I had different types of kofte because they have, I think, over 300 different types of kofte in Turkey. And I think I understood a few things that are worth sharing with you. First of all, in terms of meat, the Italian-American mostly use beef. Sometimes a bit of pork as well. Right. But, but the, the one I had was mostly beef. The Swedish one, it's beef and pork. And, and for the Turkish one, it's very, very often lamb or lamb and beef which means something about the different flavor profile. Basically, the American one, as we mentioned earlier, is going to be softer in terms of flavor. It's going to be milder, I would say. The Swedish one, it it will have that porky taste, but also it's going to add loads of fat. As for the Turkish one, the thing I understood, it has a bold edge to it. Lamb not only is fat, but it's also quite strong. I don't know if that's... Very common to have lamb in the US.
2: No, I, I think the per capita consumption of beef is 70 pounds here in the United States and lamb is like three pounds, so no. Okay, so so, so so I learned that if I wanted to create the perfect meatball recipe,
9: the type of meat would be crucial. And And for me, because lamb is not that common, I decided to go for beef or pork. Next, I analyzed the non-meat element because I feel like that makes an amazing
2: difference. Well, in Naples, for example, I think they use soaked breadcrumbs in water. They use up to 30-40% of the meatball's bread. Exactly. It's making the texture what it is,
9: because yeah. I started also making bowls using only ground beef. It doesn't taste bad. It, it tastes beefy, but but it tastes more like a burger patty. Right. A meatball has a wholeness to it. And and basically, within these three recipes, the Italian-American, the Swedish one, and the Turkish one, I, I found out that they use about the same ratios of meat to non-meat element. And it's always bread of some sort. I tend to go for breadcrumbs more than just sandwich slices because it's more easy to control. But I wouldn't go the way the Italians do using just water and breadcrumbs. Neither would I go to using milk, which imparts a too soft, too sweet flavor of my taste. The, the The one that I enjoyed the most was the Turkish one, where they used... Yoghurt and breadcrumbs Yoghurt is quite fatty if you if you pick for example Greek yogurt, and also you've got some tang, which is very Mm. Enjoyable very pleasant with all that fat that is coming in the meatball, but I understood that there needs to be in that meatball both elements to make it fattier But also element to make it juicier And, and for the juiciness I'm talking about the flesh of a vegetable I tend to use the flesh of zucchinis.
2: I knew you were gonna I knew you were gonna get to zucchini <laughs> because I know uh, there's a lot of famous chefs who make turkey meatballs and their trick is to throw a bunch of shredded zucchini in it so yeah
9: because yeah. it, it works it it, yeah. it it pumps up the juiciness without adding too much fattiness and, and oh. that's great it creates those little pockets of, of juices I've been experimenting with uh, zucchini flesh but also onion flesh. When I say flesh, do I sound like a serial killer or is it just like normal to use that (laughs) word? You
2: you always sound like a serial killer. It's fine.
9: Okay, that's fine. (laughs) Perfect. Now, at the moment, I'm, I'm still trying to experiment and still trying to up my game in this meatball odyssey, but I've understood that fat equals pleasure and that juiciness will come from vegetables. That's what I established.
2: And Greek yogurt along with the breadcrumbs. Exactly. Alex, I news. we have the perfect meatball after traveling around the world to Turkey, Stockholm, uh, and New York. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex I News. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Swedish meatballs have a curious history. Charles XII of Sweden had an illustrious military career until he invaded Russia in the 18th century. He decamped to Constantinople, and when he finally returned to Sweden, it's said that the Turkish kofta inspired the Swedish meatball. That's like saying the German apple pancakes are just like American pancakes. Well, it just won't wash. Giving credit for culinary inspiration is a good thing, but when meatballs are served with lingonberry sauce, it just ain't kofta anymore that's it for this week's show if you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts to learn more about Milk Street visit us at 177milkstreet.com there you can find all of our recipes take an online cooking class or order our latest cookbook Milk Street Fast and Slow Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need you can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening.
5: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinzaba, Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sidney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.